All right. So what it says on the calendar is the current state of Angular. California. <laughs> <laughs> Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 35 of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Holler. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and we've got a couple of special guests. We've got Brad Green. Hi. Mishko Hevery. Hello. And Igor Minar. Hey, guys. So uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the current state of things with AngularJS or Angular. Which which is the more official, with or without the JS? We actually tried to drop the JS. So while we started with AngularJS in the last couple of months, probably more than a year actually now, we've been just preferring Angular. And... Like, you can blame me for this because it just drives me nuts when people spell Angular space dot space JS or any other crazy variants of <laughs> Angular JS. So we just decided to make it simpler for people and just drop JS and just call it Angular. We were originally a little worried about people being able to find us, but apparently, uh, we've replaced the physics form of Angular as the number one search result. So if you just type Angular in a browser, you can get to us. Very nice. Now I get to write an angular.rb. <laughs> now I have to change the title of my book. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> no, don't print it yet. <laughs> I need to print it before it gets official. So there were a lot of announcements at NGConf, and we kind of talked through some of them on the live show last week. But I'm, I'm kind of curious to know from you guys, like, which announcements did you feel like were the most important or impactful? I'm glad you asked. We recently put a blog post up on the, the view that we thought was most impactful. We can walk through that today, or, or we can go on specific items, whichever you think is better. Oh, we'd love to walk through it. Yeah. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple things. The sum up is that Angular 2 is in alpha. It's streaming fast. It's a lot easier to learn. And we're going to make it so that you can mix and match it with your Angular 1 apps so that you can migrate a little bit at a time. We've been investing heavily in the one Angular 1 branch. We've almost got a, uh, a release candidate zero for Angular 1.4, which will include some performance improvements and then a bunch of other big feature bits, like the new router that we're sharing between Angular 1 and Angular 2, a new IT&N facility that we think is amazing, you have to work on the ITN. There's a lot of problems to solve there. Internationalization. Internationalization. Sorry. Thanks. And that is also shared between Angular 1 and Angular 2. And so I think the good news is, is these things are starting to pave the way for writing code directly in Angular 2 because you'll be familiar with the API. And you'll be actually writing very similar code against both. Hmm. So following that, we're, we're going to be working on 1.5 and we'll, we'll take community input as to where we should go with it. We have set a theme for it, though, which is to make migration to Angular 2 simple and easy. 
The other big news from the conference was our partnership with the TypeScript guys. And we had Jonathan from the TypeScript team on stage, and we announced that we were going to merge all of our AppScript extensions to JavaScript development with TypeScript. And we were able to do this because they'd actually implemented all of the features that we had done in AppScript. And they have a wonderful tool chain, and they're just good guys to work with. So we're excited about moving it forward. And from here, we're going to be working with them to continue to improve the tool chain and, and add features, but also work with a larger group of partners on driving these things into the JavaScript standard through the TC39 process. Cool. So what do you feel like that your involvement is going to be in driving this through the TC39 process? We, like, at this point, we care the most about moving the annotations forward because that's one of the areas there was lack of forward progress. So we, we committed to getting the metadata and annotations uh, or decorators or something in between to TC39 and get it to the hands of developers. The type part of uh, AppScript or TypeScript, we feel like the guys from V8 and TypeScript have the expertise to do this. We're happy to consult with them and, and give them feedback. In that area, the piece that we care a lot about is runtime uh, checking, which is something that TypeScript doesn't have yet, and uh, we're working on adding that to TypeScript. So speaking of annotations, we're, we're actually very interested in having more partners who want to both implement it in transpilers and who want to bring their support. We've had a good partnership on this with Yehuda Katz from Ember and also Rob Eisenberg of, uh, what's his name? Aurelia. Aurelia, yes. And we're looking for more folks who are interested in both using them in their frameworks and then supporting them and bringing them to browsers or other. So could you explain a little bit about annotations and the strength of them and why you guys are really pushing forward with this? Right, so for the really long time, Angular has been trying to use annotations in our APIs because we feel like having the ability to describe code through metadata is very powerful. It allows you to create a piece of code that can be plugged into a framework and then the framework can declaratively understand what that piece of code is trying to do and how it falls into the, the whole framework. And if you look at Angular 1 code base, you'll see that we already tried to do this through the array notation for dependence injection, and even our current directive API is very declarative and kind of looks like one giant annotation if you squint hard enough. So th this is something we saw in Angular, but then when we looked outside of Angular, we saw that this is not just Angular-specific problem. Like I was looking at some React demos the other day, and I, I was just thinking, hey, they're actually trying to do something that annotations would be a better fit for. Like, they have this API and they are working around the language trying to describe what this class is all about. And there are other examples in JavaScript. We also saw that annotations are really powerful outside of JavaScript. So there is, there is a lot of prior knowledge. And we can see that once a feature like this is added to programming language, it enables new kind of APIs or makes existing APIs much more easier to read. And this is why we think that having annotations in JavaScript would be very much beneficial, not just to Angular, but to broader JavaScript ecosystem. It's kind of like bringing reflection to JavaScript as we know it in other languages, would you say? We already have reflection. What do you mean? Well, in the ability to, to extend it to actually an extensible reflection in, in that it could be used by tooling at static time and also 
you can program against those annotations at runtime to do all kinds of things beyond injection and so forth. Right. So it's not just about like in, injection. There are many things you can do with, with annotations, and we actually have a doc. If anyone is interested, I can I can just uh, add it to the podcast notes where we describe many of the use cases already in JavaScript or possible use cases in JavaScript in the future, but also use cases outside of JavaScript. So we have pretty good collections of these use cases. And we definitely want to be able to interact with these annotations at the runtime because I think that that's what makes them very powerful. Yeah, when I said that it's not exactly... I mean, you were saying that we already have reflection, but, for example, the type information that would normally... Maybe you had some type annotations today. They are usually erased in TypeScript at runtime, so you wouldn't actually have any information about parameters and and so forth unless you had these supplemental things during runtime, right? That's correct. Maybe Mishko could expand on this, but before we go there, I, I just want to make a clear distinction between metadata annotations and type annotations. For the standardization purposes, we are trying to distinguish between these two. Even though to developers, they look very similar and conceptually they are very similar. Uh, for purposes of standardization and, and, uh, just getting it through the whole process, it's easier to deal with this as two separate features. Fair enough. Mishko, can you talk about runtime type inference and dealing with types at runtime in TypeScript? So right, right now, the, at runtime, the type information is erased, but there are use cases for me to retain the type information. Yeah, so the way the TypeScript solves this is that when you have, well, they don't have annotations, they have decorators. Is that when a decorator is executed, it gets past the type information, and if the decorator chooses to persist that information, it's up to the decorator. That was a big statement. <laughs> <laughs> Other cases where we want to retain type information, not metadata, but type mm-hmm. information. So the, the TypeScript only allows you to retain it if you have a decorator over there. But I think you were asking about use cases. We're trying to support, like, why do we want these things? Oh, so it, it really enables metaprogramming, right? There's all kinds of ways that, you know, as a framework, you don't know what the developer is going to write on the, on the, on the end of the day. But by having a metaprogramming, you can kind of create really meta-algorithms. And the meta here is that you plug in the type system uh, at runtime from the developer. And do we have things specifically in Angular we care about? Uh, well, dependency injection is an example of that. Yeah. Instantiating directives, building components, assembling them together, using the directive information to control the HTML rendering. Yeah, those are all examples. Yeah, so all over the place, essentially. Yes. This is how Angular is built, and everybody takes advantage. Like, I think like we've already talked about some of the, the end developer bits that they'll care about. Documentation is a big one. You know, be able to do you know develop time versus deploy time aspects of your code, lots of interesting use cases. Could we uh, talk a little bit about like the stability of the current state of Angular? I know that there's like, we've seen some syntax at ng-conf, and in other places there was a really cool meetup that happened in Mountain View back in early February. And so I'm just curious what your guys' feeling is about how much things might change. For example, like the template syntax, how much do you think that might change before Angular 2 finally releases versus the JavaScript, the way that you author components, how much that syntax might change versus the build system, which I think that one's pretty obviously going to change a lot because that's probably not something you guys have worked on too much yet as far as putting Angular into a real built-up system, but the overall authoring process and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So the way the directives are created and used, that has been uh, used for a while in Angular Dart. So we feel like that, that code is pretty vetted. You know, uh, obviously, you never know when you come across a use case that totally blows your mind, but it's kind of unlikely. Same thing with the, the syntax, and we've been working on it for now over a year, we tried all kinds of different examples. It seems to work well. We don't expect to have any kind of a crazy use case to be discovered that's going to throw a wrench uh, under our feet. So it's kind of unlikely. It's pretty stable. Well, there are a few things that we might add, but not change. Right. Adding is always a possibility. Changing is... Uh, but again, this is alpha code, so if we start <laughs> building production applications and we change stuff, then don't be angry at us, please. <laughs> Well, uh, like, I think there's probably a good example of the for uh, each syntax, right? Like, wasn't that recently changed? Yeah, from bang to star. Uh, I wouldn't call it a syntax, right? This is a... Uh, the syntax of binding has not changed. What we have changed is the name of the, the directive. To me, that's not in the syntax category. Uh, well, I think uh, in our demo at the meetup in February, we used bang for each, and at ng-conf, we used star for each. Uh, I think he's referring to for each going to four. Which one are you referring to? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I I think it was the bang went to star. I think you talked. One of you talked about that. Um, yeah. So the reason we uh, we went against the bang <clears throat> is because it would say bang if equals expression, and it kind of looked like not if equals expression. And <laughs> so we kind of looked at it and said, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's kind of quite a segue into the whole binding syntax, which is actually. That was something that, that many people who first were encountering your plans for, for Angular 2 got kind of willied out, got really freaked out by. And actually, it's as uh, was made clear, it's really not so much a syntax change as it's a rethinking of the way in which binding, in which you signal what you mean by binding to something. And I thought that, Mishko, that your presentation uh, in your keynote about about data binding was something that we should tell our viewers to, or listeners to go check out. But maybe you can summarize what the real change is there so that uh, they're invited to go, uh, you know, they really want to go look at that video again because I thought it was a great presentation. Thank you. So the big change is that we're, we're changing the semantics of what does it mean to bind. In the old system, we were binding to attributes on the DOM. In the new system, we're binding to properties. And it turns out that that. Seemingly tiny change, the difference between I, whether one can bind to uh, web components or not. The other change is that we needed to make sure that we could escape the binding in a way that the web component couldn't get a hold of it. And that really meant that you have to escape the key portion of the attribute, not the value portion of the attribute. So we really changed the, the philosophy of saying, you know, HTML is really just a serialization of the DOM. And at runtime, the DOM is really all about the properties, not about the attributes. And once you kind of internalize this particular point of view, you know, all the other pieces just kind of naturally fall out. Specifically, Ward's probably talking about the unidirectional data flow we've taken on for uh, change detection. And what does that mean for forms? That's right. Well, I certainly want to get there, but I think that there's <laughs> the prior prior um, observation that you were just making there, because at first it's sort of, you know, I can tell you our first reaction was, wow, this is just like some kind of arbitrary shuffling of the chairs. 
you know, what? Now, you know, come on, I used to be able to do Angie this and my that, and now suddenly you've changed that, all of that, and it seems completely unmotivated. And I think that's what you did. You made really clear, maybe I should have, in reading it, understood it, but you made it really clear that this is a semantic change, not a syntactic change, that it's about, you know, that thing about binding to properties directly of the underlying DOM rather than trying to trick the with new attributes is the key move and that uh, we'll still be able to do all the things that we used to be able to do, but we'll be able to do a lot more of them without having to dip into the angular storehouse of like what directives do they have for us today kind of thing. That's right. Yes, I cannot stress this enough that this has been motivated by you know web components and simplification and it was not just a random let's change the syntax you know that the syntax thing is really a side effect of the semantic change I, I think we definitely are learning how to better communicate our intentions and in many cases I think we've done a lot on our end and like all of this stuff was documented in many design docs for over a year before it was even showed to public at, at NG Europe so if there's anything I would like to ask your listeners is that when they see something odd, before they make a conclusion, they should look for motivation. And usually the motivation, at least in, in our cases, is very accessible. And uh, I think just understanding why we're doing something rather than what we are doing, just looking at what we are doing, would answer lots of questions and, and help people understand why this stuff matters. And, and to make this easier, we've recently, you probably noticed this, on the AngularJS.org site, there's now a big yellow button that links to our design docs and notes. So if folks weren't following our weekly meeting notes or our Twitter posts or any of these other things, now there's one easy place they can go to look for it. So now we've set the decks. The thing that's still got me spooked is how do I... Well, there's two-way data binding. And we're all, most of us are... Not everybody understands what two-way data binding is, but I'll just say at the surface, I don't think any of us actually cares about the phrase two-way data binding so much as we care about the ability to work with forms and get uh, take user input and bind that into our objects in some fashion or another in a way that doesn't require us to do a lot of writing of code or unnatural code. So what have you got for us? Right. So we have the new form API. And again, let's talk about the motivations, why we're, we're changing it. So the issue with the old system is that if you wanted to write a unit test, uh, all of the information about what fields exist and what are the validators is stored in HTML. And as a result, uh, you can't really unit test the component or the controller behind that particular component because without the information of what the form structure is and its validation rules, uh, what exactly are you testing? So this is the primary motivation why we're moving the metadata about the form from the UI to the imperative code of the JavaScript. And the idea there is that you can just instantiate it, you can unit test it, you can write a unit test that says, you know, imagine I enter a username into the field, you know, what kind of error message will I get? Will I get it saying something like, you know, this is not an email address or something like that. And the UI should really have nothing but the rendering information. You know, how does the form look like is the domain of the UI. How exactly the form behaves and how to validate it and what fields exist, etc. That really is the domain of the controller. And so this is the kind of the motivation why we have moving it into this thing. It is slightly more verbose, and I say slightly, uh, because for a large form, the benefits greatly outweigh the, the, the few more keystrokes that you have to do in order to get it in there. So that, that's basically what's happening. Now, 
Uh, the way this gets around the problem of two-way data binding is because the, the controller is aware, or rather knows the full structure of the form. The form can bind to the UI elements at runtime and set up the right listeners, etc. Now, what we're basically saying is that the bracket notation, or the what I like to refer to as the forward binding, it gets data from the model to the UI. But the event notation, or the parentheses, or the on-dash notation, right, that's the reverse direction. It gets data from the UI back to the model. And so the form's control automatically sets up all of the forward and backwards bindings for you so that you don't have to do it. You simply have to just say, this is a form and it's bound to this form declared in, in, imperatively inside of the code. And so the end result is that you should be able to do forms just like before, but the benefits are we still have a direct acyclic graph so we can do single digest, and you should be able to have a lot easier time unit testing that thing and understanding its behaviors. We should also talk about observables and how observables can play a big role in this. Right. So because the form API is now inside of uh, JavaScript or kind of the structural declaration, not the visible one, you can listen to the changes on it, and we've chosen observables uh, as the mechanism by which you can listen on changes uh, inside of the code. So it's a lot more expressive in terms of what is the intent of the form. And for those that are not familiar with observables, this is a new... Uh, feature that is being uh, standardized as part of ES7 or ES2016, whatever they call it now. And the, the goal is there to be able to create reactive streams in, in JavaScript in a standard way, uh, standard way, just like we have promises, standardized on an API for reactive streams. And the name for that is observables. The main benefit is like one, once you have this abstraction, then you can mix and match streams. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff, joining, forking. Uh, do transformations on streams, all uh, regardless of where the streams are originating from. And for us, one of these origin would be forms. Is there some place we can go to learn about a your the sort of new way of hooking up the forms and and b about how it relates to observables? Unfortunately, we don't have documentation, but we have lots of unit tests where you can see the documentation. So I would just say go check out the source code for now. But docs are coming soon. We'll make some announcements. Maybe at the next uh, Angular meetup here in Mountain View, we'll bring some more attention to, to that. And I would like to return back to the discussion about one-way versus two-way data binding, or what exactly this two-way data binding is. Because in my experience, when I talk to many of the developers, there's a lot of confusion about what this two-way data binding actually is. And many people think that the double curly uh, which they know from Angular 1 is two-way data binding. And when somebody says, oh, two-way data binding is going away, they're like, are you taking my double curls away? How am I going to do anything? So <laughs> let, me, let me just clarify what, what this mysterious two-way data binding is, yeah, at least in Angular. So in Angular, we have one-way data binding, which is the double curly that you know, and two-way data binding, which is ng-model, which is the, the, the way to bind forms. There is one more use case where we use two-way data binding, which is binding between two components. So let's say you have a single model in your application, and you have two components, and you want to bind that model to both of these components. And if any of the components change the model from its internal state, you want the change to propagate back to the model, and from there to propagate to the other component. And what we found in large applications is that this approach just doesn't scale. It's very hard to understand and reason about in large applications and just causes more trouble than what it's worth. So we have different strategies to deal with use cases that would usually be implemented in this way, but we have no intention of 
supporting this uh, two-way device. Well, for our audience, let me set out the case where I think that that occurs that we run into all the time. If you've ever uh, scheduled a meeting or something like that and you put the start time in, it usually calculate, pre-calculates an output time, like a half an hour later, right? So that it'll be a half-hour meeting. And if I move the start time up an hour, then automatically, it, from the user's perspective, the finish time moves a half hour. But I can also change the end time if I want independently, so that's actually an independent control. So that kind of scenario, and there are varieties of that all the time, will be able to, that's a, certainly a challenge for what you just said, but we'll be able to do it somehow? So let me kind of rephrase the thing slightly. One way data binding is basically you read the expression. Two-way data binding is most of the times you read the expression, sometimes you write into it, and this is where the problem starts. So in the, in the scenario you described with the sliders, the way to solve this particular problem is to say, whenever I want to write to an expression, instead of just writing into it, I have to go and make sure that I am the first thing that happens by moving it to the beginning of the whole process rather than just randomly somewhere in the middle of the digest cycle. I have made it explicit, and by making it explicit, I made it predictable. And so what you are asking for can certainly be done easily in Angular 2, but it's not going to be done through the clever use of double curlies, but it's going to be done by saying, you know, on slider move or on selection, go recompute the other two values. Okay, I kind of expected that, but I thought maybe somebody wouldn't know when we were talking about it in the abstract. It sure will be great when we see some examples, and I know those are coming. Yes. Cool. There was another thing that kind of got me, you know, I'm going to take the occasion to have you all here to get at some of the things that struck me as um, frictional. When I define a component and I, I notice that there's that add template or add something at the top where I describe the template and I have to list the, well, what I would have called directives, I'm not sure what they call them. I have to list what they are that will appear in the yes. template in order for them to be found. Is that correct? Yes, they're still called directives. There has been some confusion, actually, that I've been answering a question online just the other day where somebody said, oh, directives were replaced with components. And it's not actually true. What we're saying is in Angular 1x, there's just directive, which has all kinds of different use cases. In Angular 2, we have directives, but we specifically laid out the three different use cases that, we, that exist, one of them which happens to be a component, the other one is the decorator, and the last one is a viewport. But the question is, why do we have to list the imports? So the, so the first thing is that you don't have to list every single one. You can easily group them together into a common set of uh, directives you like to use and just list the one by itself. If you wanted to imagine you had a Angular 1x world, it's as if you created a one global array with every single directive list in it, and then you just simply add that array into the directives list. The directives list is recursive, which means it can have arrays of arrays, which can have more arrays and be flattened into a single list on the end. So, so you don't have to list every single one. But there are benefits by listing them. The benefit is that we can really understand uh, and encapsulate and we can limit which set of directives are imported in a particular template. So you can simply just say, I just want director A and B and not the required directive that happened to like do some form validation or something like that. Uh, and you can also rename the directive selectors at this point. So if you happen to want to import two separate directives that happen to the same selector and someone collides with for you, uh, you also have the ability to rename one of the selectors. So you do have to import. 
You can group them into uh, supersets, so you don't have to list every single one. And there are some very nice benefits you get out of it. So I guess the question Ward is trying to ask is, why do I have to do it in JavaScript when we're the place where I actually use this directives is in HTML or in the template? Bingo. Uh, yes, that's, a, that's also a very interesting question. So it would feel kind of natural to do the import inside of the HTML. The trouble is that inside of the HTML, you can only write strings. And if you can only write strings, then you have to have some mechanism of matching the string name to a reference inside of the imperative code. And this is where the problem comes in, is that there is, it's, there's no easy way of matching the string to the imperative reference in a way that isn't global, that can be renamed, that is consistent with the um, with minifiers and uh, tree shakers and so on. So to like really, it, it boils down to we just don't know how to do it while retaining all the benefits of ES6 module system. So I think the friction really comes from how do you integrate HTML templating with ES6 module system. If you look, there there, there was an effort to add import system into HTML through HTML import, which uh, Polymer and possibly some other web component uh, libraries are using. But there's also a lot of pushback against that spec because it doesn't solve one fundamental problem, which is how do you unify the HTML imports with ES6 imports or uh, ECMAScript imports uh, and module systems. That, that is just not solved yet. I know that there is some work being done and many, many Smart people are looking into this to figure out how to unite these two worlds. For now, we decided we'll just take the easy path and declare the imports in, in JavaScript. Personally, this bothers me a lot, and I have some ideas about how we could work around this using tooling, where the tooling would allow you to specify the imports in HTML, but under the hood, it would be converted into JavaScript code, so we would have both the nice declarative syntax as well as all the benefits that ECMAScript 6 gives us, but this this work still needs to be done. So we're hoping that this will improve, but we're also trying to push the web platform forward in this area because it's, it's a bigger problem. It's not something specific to any Well, I have to agree with you, uh, Igor, about feeling uncomfortable about it and looking for something. But one thing that occurs to me is that I, I'm not sure everybody was clear on why um, we felt it necessary, why we couldn't just wait um, until the template appeared and sort of analyze it as we go, which is pretty much what happens today, right? I mean, you, you bring in a template and then Angular 1 walks well, over it and figures out what's there. And so naming collisions aside, which which we've been living without that problem being much of a problem anyway, what's the motivation for wanting to declare these things uh, up front? So in Angular 1, you have to list every single directive inside of your module ahead of time. So it's as if you had a global list of directives. What we're exactly. doing in Angular 2 is we're just moving that global list to a component-specific list. Right. That's the thing that seems weird. In other words, if, if you came to us and said, yeah, you still have to register them somewhere so we know to load them, I'd have gotten that. But what feels weird is that a, like, I think of it as a view model, but the controller or the component uh, has any specific knowledge of the view. That's the thing that just doesn't feel right for me. So why would I suddenly take an interest in doing that? So it's not the component. Uh, the component has a template annotation. And it's the template annotation that knows about this. 
and it's not like the component can really get a hold of the template annotation at runtime. I mean, the, the system can, but not the component itself. Uh, and keep in mind, like, you could have multiple templates per component depending on, you know, device or localization and so on. Hmm. Well, that's, that, that's a shocker. <laughs> so I'm looking, we're looking forward to learning more about all this. But that's good too, because not everybody is saying, I want to lock a controller to a particular view. Again, it's usually one to one, but not always. Well, the use cases for that are primarily if you're building UIs that scale across multiple viewport sizes. So let's say you want a specific template for mobile device and other template for a large desktop application, and you can't achieve benefits through just CSS. Maybe on, on mobile, you just want completely different UI. These are the use cases where you, you want multiple templates. And if you have a different UI on a mobile, it could very well be that there's a different set of components. So why should you be loading these components into your application? Right? These components should not be taking up valuable memory space in the app. Uh, so this mechanism allows you to just say, only load these components if this particular template is up and running. Very interesting. It, it definitely feels a lot different, but it's an interesting way to uh, tackle that problem. I think if you if you think about it more, you'll realize that this is very similar to what we are doing with JavaScript. When I say we, not as the Angular team, but as uh, the JavaScript community, we realized that at some point, just using globals for sharing symbols and, and variables just breaks down. And that's why we realized that we actually need a module system in JavaScript. These imports in, in templates in Angular are just analog to that but translated to Angular and, and templates. So th this is actually one of the issues that I have with the current web components uh, specifications, where if you import a web component, the import is global, and you can import it from wherever, and if you do it in the right way, then the component web component will just work, and if you don't do it, or if you have a collision, then you don't really know where the collision is coming from, and it's... Just the whole system is, for me, it's harder to understand. Whereas if the imports were scoped and were explicit, I would feel more comfortable. So one of the things that obviously is going to happen is people are going to be authoring a template at some point, add in a new directive into their template, refresh, and it doesn't work. And I think there's a couple of things in Angular that I identify with this. Like, it's that one thing that I keep forgetting to do. For example, a snake case versus camel case in directive names, right? So we're building tooling that will just tell you that, hey, there is the suspicious attribute that is not HTML and looks suspicious. You probably made a mistake and might want to go back and fix it. Oh. So, so it's not just tooling, but we can do this at runtime. Uh, we can look at, for example, a property binding, and we can do has property off and see, like, okay, you seem to be binding to a property that doesn't exist. You're probably doing something wrong. We can also look at extra attributes that we don't recognize and say, you know, this particular attribute doesn't exist in HTML. Why are you putting it over here? You probably forgot something. And so in vast majority of cases, I believe we, we can now do a proper runtime error. And uh, certainly if we can do a runtime, we can also do it at, at uh, tooling time. But we can give you a nice error that says, Seems like you forgot to import something. <laughs> right, I so think people are going to really like that. Where I think it's important for people to just be a little patient. Like, all this stuff is alpha, and there are many pieces still missing that will fill in the whole picture. And I think when we show the whole picture, things will make a lot more sense, and you'll see why these things actually matter and how they fall together into one place. 
I think people are just excited about it. And they also, <laughs> what's got me is that maybe at first, you know, when we first heard about it, and this is true of all things where you move the cheese, it was like, oh, they're going to jam 2.0 down our throats. But actually, when you couple the migration story and the way you guys are talking about it, it's more like Angular 2 has to go out there and win our hearts. And, and you've got one to carry you as far as it carries you, uh, and it'll be great, and you're going to stand behind it. But we're going to have something for you that makes you feel, wow, I really want to move to 2. And, uh, totally right, Warren. But I think I think you're reflecting what a lot of people feel in that I haven't seen the syntax yet or experienced it, and so I feel nervous about it. And so, like Igor said, we're really going to focus on showing examples, showing people how forms work, getting tooling together, showing them how that improves their lives. And you, you, you can hold us to that. That's totally fair. In the last couple of minutes here, well, I think one thing that everybody wants to know is, can they start playing around with Angular now, and what's that like? Angular 2. Yes, they can start playing with it, and it's a minefield. <laughs> well, mostly because there's no docs and there's missing pieces. Like there's the router's not been ported. Uh, some of the form stuff is still coming together. Well, uh, I think there's also the issue of just there's not a, an actual like really good build out there. So getting Angular into something and playing around with it involves a, a lot of like working with bigger pieces, lots of different files, that sort of thing. That's probably a little bit of a difficulty with using Angular 2 now, right? Yeah, and we're definitely working on fixing this. The reason why we're showing all of this stuff early on is because we do want community feedback from people that are willing to, to spend the time and go through the minefield, as Mishko described it, and, and give us feedback. We're going to make this easier as the time goes, but we didn't want to have like big reveal, like, you know, look at this shiny new thing. This is the Angular 2, and it's done, and you have... No, nothing you can tell us about it because this is how we made all the decisions and that's it. So the reason why we're showing this early on is because we really want the community involvement and get early feedback. Like this thing about imports that Ward mentioned, it bothers me personally a lot and I know that it's going to bother other people. So explaining why it works this way and maybe having somebody from the community come and give us a suggestion that we haven't considered would be very useful. And this is not just about imports, about anything. We're looking for any kind of constructive feedback, but I would just ask everybody, if you want to give us feedback, please try to understand why we are where we are right now. We have a lot of design docs out there that explain the current state and why, how we got there. So it's not very useful for us to just go over and over the same discussion we already had uh, many times in the past. Awesome. Okay, well, I think that... Um we covered that in a short amount of time, but it's probably sufficient for the moment. Yep. It's going to get better. Yeah, so just just to reiterate the recipe, we want feedback, and, and a lot of it. But first, go read our design docs and watch our keynotes so that you get the full story. And, and then definitely come tell us what you think. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks now. Joe, you ready with a pick? Yeah, you bet. I'm going to cheat and have more than one pick because it's related to the topics. We just talked about getting started with Angular. I've played around with a lot of different ways to try to do Angular 2, and the one that really works out the best and is the easiest to get going with is a repository by Dave Smith that he made in preparation for his talk at ng-conf. So I'm going to make that my first pick, and then my second pick is going to be the ng-Vegas conference coming up in May, which I'm helping to organize, which I'm really excited about because there's going to be a lot more opportunity to talk about Angular 2 in a couple of months than there has been in the past. 
Very nice. I was actually going to ask you guys about Angie Vegas and Angular U at the end of the show. I happen to know somebody who's speaking at Angular U. Yours truly. Awesome. As will I. All right, Ward, do you have a pick for us? I thought that NGConf was so wonderful, so full of material, that my pick, it's so obvious, is to go to the uh, YouTube channel for NGConf and check out some of the videos there. In particular, the two keynotes really set the stage, and they are worth chewing on. So go do it. All right. I have a big plus one for that. I was going to pick the same thing as YouTube channel for NGConf. It was just, it was a terrific experience. It was fun to be there. And there was a ton of just great information. I think my favorite of the, you know, not the keynotes was probably NG Watt. So uh, go watch that if you're you're up for a laugh. And uh, yeah, that's that's all I've got. Lucas, do you have a pick? Yeah, my pick is uh, the new Angular I/O site. I'm really digging it. I just am super excited to see new content being added, and I actually really love the new logo. So plus one. All right, Brad, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, so you know we we focus a lot on diversity at Google here, and this is a this is a big, huge cultural shift we're trying to go through, particularly in computer science. I saw a great post just last week called "Coding Like a Girl," where it talks about the experience being a woman in uh, in the field, and I would urge every guy and woman out there to uh, to go read it. All right, Igor, do you have a a pick for us? I was going to pick NGConf, but somebody took that away from me. So I'll pick Didgeridoo instead. Because at NGConf, like, there were all kinds of crazy stuff that I was just amazed uh, with. But I also, we, we, we had a guy in the hallway just play Didgeridoo, and I fell in love. So I've been listening to Didgeridoo music for a while now. All right. Nishko, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, I'm kind of a big fan of Angular 2. <laughs> I don't understand. Well done. All right. Joe, any uh, news you want to share about NG Vegas? Obviously, we're looking for sponsors. And by the time this goes live, the early bird tickets will no longer be on sale. But we have lots of speakers, and the speaker lineup should be posted by the time this goes live. So excited for that. That's it. All right. And Ward, do you have, have any? Can I, can I share one more idea? Sure. I have a better one than Didgeridoo. Uh, so <laughs> Dave Smith, he was a speaker at NGCon, and he did a talk on React and Angular and how you could benefit from using React in Angular. And at the end of the talk, he showed the same example. Uh, like The whole story was that particle scenario in Angular 1 was slow. He used React. It was much faster. It was great. And then in the end, he showed the same example with Angular 2, and it was even faster. But what he found out after the presentation was that he made a mistake in his presentation and actually accidentally made the React code slower. So what he did, and this is something I really appreciated, was that he went back, he recorded a screencast where he explained uh, the mistake he made, he corrected it, and then he showed the actual difference between the two and then ask the conference organizers to append that piece to his presentation as a addendum. And I think this really speaks to uh, the integrity of the speaker. It's something that I don't see very frequently, and I think that it's very common that people make mistakes. Admitting that you made a mistake is really cool when you do it, and it's even important if you make this in a way where you can actually explain what happened and what the, the correct information is. Because I just see too much misinformation out there on the internet. So if we can 
go back and fix it, uh, we should do it. And this is a great example of that. It sure is. I, I, and the, the integrity of our discussion about each other's in frameworks is something that I thought was sorely, is sorely been missing. But it's a kind of maturity that's coming to it. It was made clear at the beginning of the conference. And I think that's the way we all should go forward. And uh, I'm looking forward to more of that kind of thing that you're talking about there. That's, that really shows that we understand we're all in this together. Plus 1,000. Well said. Yeah, we all benefit from the ecosystem getting better, regardless of whether it's right in our backyard with Angular or something else. All right. Ward, do you have any news about uh, Angular U that you want to share? Well, just that it's coming in June and that California is beautiful and it's right next to the Angular team. So they'll use an excellent chance of your meeting the team if you come. And we haven't had rain in so long that it'll probably still be beautiful in June. It's up today. So if you have well, a major annual pilgrimage to Mecca, it's yeah. time to go. It's time to come to Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we have, so we'll wrap it up. Thanks for coming, Brad, Mishko, and Igor. Oh, this is great. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. All right. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 